0: Welcome to The Theopas Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, had a pastoral call, and uh, is not able to be with us for this episode. Uh, we're thankful for Brian Moats, as always, who is uh, recording, and will edit everything and smooth everything out and make it uh, pleasant to listen to uh, for you and our listening audience. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are in the middle of a series of studies on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And we're currently in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, roughly halfway through the book, exactly halfway through the book, I should say. And uh, we're in the section of Deuteronomy that's devoted to the fifth commandment, On Your Father and Mother. Uh, That section begins in chapter 16, verse 18, and continues on to the end of chapter 18, verse 22. Uh, And uh, although this section is the fifth word section of Deuteronomy, it doesn't actually deal with family life. Instead, it deals with the wider family life of Israel. The language that Moses uses repeatedly in Deuteronomy is that uh, Israelites are brothers to one another. And if Israelites are brothers, then they have a father. Yahweh is the father. But then Yahweh has appointed subordinate fathers, surrogate fathers, as it were, to govern his people and to rule the, the family of Israel. And those are judges, priests, priests prophet, king, those different offices are what's being covered in this this section of Deuteronomy. Uh, and today we're going to at least uh, start by looking at the section on kingship, which comes at the end of chapter 17. Uh, that begins in verse 14. And I just want to highlight one thing that uh, Jeff Myers mentioned in uh, toward the end of our last episode, which is the, the focus of attention in this section is dealing with a king, but it gives very little indication what the king does what authority has, how he functions as a judge, how he functions as commander-in-chief. It doesn't It doesn't really uh, detail any of that. Uh, instead, what it tells us is that the king gives some negative commands that we'll look at. But it would, positively, what a king is supposed to do is to sit on his throne with the book of the law. And he's supposed to copy it out for himself, commit it to memory because he's copying out in the presence of the Levitical priests. Uh, and he's also supposed to call it out. Um, verse 19 It's translated as read in most English Bibles, but the verb is kara, which is often translated as call. It's the first word of the book of Leviticus. Yahweh called to Moses. uh, And whenever Yahweh calls to Moses and summons him, that's the verb that's used. That's the verb that's used here, which suggests that what the king is doing is not just studying the book silently reading it, but rather reading it publicly I like to think of the king as being a singer of the law, uh, as David certainly is in the book of Psalms. He's calling out the law all his days. So what the king is, as Jeff pointed out, is a model Israelite. Every Israelite is supposed to be devoted to the word of God. All of them are supposed to be studying Torah, meditating, musing on it day and night. But the king is supposed to represent that and model that for the rest of Israel, both by having his own copy of the law, by reading it himself, but also by calling it out and uh, publicly declaring it uh, to the people. I came across a a, uh, uh, monograph uh, recently that uh, was talking about this, talking about the background, uh, Deuteronomy 17 as background to the Book of of Psalms, and the monograph was looking at pairs of psalms scattered throughout the Psalter, which pair up Torah psalms with kingship psalms. Uh, And probably the most obvious example of that is right at the beginning of the Psalter, where we have a Torah psalm and Psalm one, the righteous man is the one who meditates on the law day and night, and then we have a kingship psalm. Then the rest of nations are pacified when the Lord sets his king on Zion, who's going to rule them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, and so on. So those two, those two psalms are paired, uh, and the monograph was pointing out that this is rooted back in Deuteronomy seventeen. The ideal king that comes, that's that's celebrated and sung about in the book of Psalms is this Deuteronomy 17 king who is characterized by knowing the book of the law, meditating and musing on the book of the law, by singing the book of the law, and by ruling and reigning in terms of the law that the Lord has given him. So uh, that is kind of a setup. Before we get into this section of chapter 17, Alistair wanted to raise a point from our last episode that we didn't get to. Uh, We raised the question of why a witness would cast the first stone when executing a convicted criminal, uh, and Alistair uh, pointed out we should have we should have discussed that in terms of John 8. So, uh, Alistair, do you want to develop what you were thinking about that?
1: Certainly. Um, John 8 is the first passage that will come to mind to most of us when we think about this particular commandment, and many see it as a negation of the principle of um, the death penalty, that no one is innocent, and so there can be no judgment in those sorts of cases that certainly not the death penalty. And looking through that particular story, which of course is the text is disputed, is it supposed to be part of John's gospel, or is it some later insertion? Leaving that to one side, it seems to me that this is a good example of some of the principles that are beneath the text of deuteronomy 17 at play so the question is what does it mean for the person to cast the first stone there is a sense in which they are taking a special responsibility for their witness bearing and also that act of judgment takes a sort of self-maledictory character that if they are in fact judging incorrectly if they are bearing false witness then that judgment comes back upon themselves and so casting the first stone is taking a special responsibility for that judgment and it's easy to lose sight of um, your particular responsibility when you're among others and so what Christ does in that instance is highlight the moral responsibility in that first act, the act that sets the model for all of the others, the first stone. After the first stone has been cast, every successive stone is easier to cast. This is something that um, René Girard and others have highlighted when discussing that passage, that there is something about mimetic desire and the patterns of imitation that is at play there and Christ is drawing attention to that first initiating act that has a peculiar responsibility because it creates a model for other successive acts. And what Jesus does there, I think, is not merely highlight the need to be morally innocent in a more general sense, but the need to be without moral complicity in that particular act of judgment. And so whether that's concerning the sin that's being judged um, if you're judging concerning an act of adultery and you are yourself an, an adulterer, you are not in a position to judge without bringing judgment upon yourself. By the measure that you meet, it will be measured to you. On the other hand, there is um, a further aspect where if it were an act of judgment within which you, are, um, you bear a particular responsibility because of some act of false witness or some complicity in that particular event. Maybe you were involved in some sort of entrapment um, that was designed to precipitate some sin and you're involved in a way that um, you are yourself guilty. Um, You cannot exercise judgment without bringing judgment upon yourself. And so I think what Christ does in that instance is, in part, an application of the principles of Deuteronomy 17, in ways that lead to a different sort of judgment, which is the judgment in situations where there is suspicion of infidelity, and the judgment is brought towards the Lord, brought to the Lord Himself, the highest court, and we see that in Numbers chapter five with the test of jealousy, and I think essentially what you have in John chapter 8 is this disqualification of unjust witnesses and judges and the movement to a different sort of judgment, which is bring to the higher justice of the Lord and Christ writing on the ground, the dust of the floor of the temple draws our mind back to the dust taken from the floor of the tabernacle and the writing of the curse that's then scraped off into the bitter cup is drunk by the suspected adulteress, what you have is that being performed, and then Christ declaring the judgment at the end, which is equivalent to what happens after the offering of the memorial portion in Numbers chapter 5. And so this is an application of the principles of Deuteronomy, not a negation of those principles or the principle of um, the death penalty, but it's a very um, illuminating case where we see the ways in which this would secure just witness and hold responsible false witnesses in a way that would serve as a deterrent to acts of false witness more generally.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think the, something uh, along those lines, I think, is necessary in order to combat the uh, the easy conclusion that many reach, that Jesus, by, um, by overturning the rule of deuteronomy um and kind of by generalizing the the claim he who is without sin must cast the first stone eliminates the possibility for judgment entirely the judgment can't be passed because all of us are sinners and therefore we you know you have to be sinless in order to pass judgment only jesus can do that but if he's applying the rules of deuteronomy in this kind of in a way that subverts expectations certainly um I think the 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 Pharisees who bring the woman are expecting Jesus to uh, expecting. you know, they have they have the they follow the procedure in their mind, and Jesus actually applies the law more penetratingly and exposes their hypocrisy and also um, releases the woman. But if he's if he's applying the rules of Deuteronomy, then you don't have that misinterpretation that Jesus is just eliminating the possibility of human judgment. And I think that you just look at it generally too. though, I mean, Jesus. Jesus is one who said the one who said, he doesn't say it in John, but the J- Jesus who did that in John 8, presuming again it's, it's uh, authentic, is the same Jesus who said not one stroke or tittle of the law will pass before all things uh, are fulfilled. He's affirming the law. It doesn't make any sense for him to just ignore part of the Torah. That doesn't fit with the rest of his ministry at all. It, it fits much better to say that he's, uh, as he does elsewhere, he's Applying Torah in ways that are surprising, applying Torah in ways that highlight the mercy, justice, and truth that he says is at the heart of Torah and showing, you know, not overturning Torah, but showing how Torah is actually supposed to be applied. I find myself in the unenviable position of uh, talking about monarchy with two monarchists, um, me, (laughs) the faithful Republican who knows that Republican system is the biblical form of government. Uh, and that it's always a perversion for kings to come. I I, I want to go back to you, Alistair. Just uh, I know that you have thought a lot about monarchy in general, and uh, you have had written an essay on it. I don't has that has that finally been published? I don't know if it. Uh, not finally, some, but yep, I have. It will be published in some form. Is, yes. Is that yeah? Maybe you could just summarize. This is not a biblical case necessarily, but uh, what what you see is as the, as the advantages of monarchy.
1: I think there are several advantages. I think one of the things that it does is establish at the heart of the people um, some principle of peacemaking as the ultimate reality of politics. And so when we think about the form of government that is established by contestation and political um, partisanship, the sorts of representatives that are brought forward by that tend to be figures that represent one party over against others. Whereas the monarch has as their duty, the um, representation of everyone representing the good and the um, union between various parties within a particular Commonwealth and not just between parties within a Commonwealth in a particular split, second in time but across history there is a sense of um, peace between the generations you have a legacy that you need to pass on and need to preserve i think also it's um an integrating symbol in other ways that represents particularly in the form that i think we have in the uk and other polities that have maintained something of the religious principles bound up with something like coronation The source of authority is not the people, it's the source of authority ultimately is the Lord. The Lord is the one who rulers and authorities must represent. Their rule arises from the authority of Christ and represents that authority and must be in submission to that. Now, as we go through the New Testament, I think we could read the entire story of Christ as a sort of coronation account Christ is the one who comes, he's anointed in some sense in his baptism. There is a a display of his glory in something like the transfiguration. The transfiguration and the cross are two sides of the same coin, neither of which can truly be understood without the other. If we think about the different aspects of each of those visions, one is um, the darkness of the crucifixion, the supernatural darkness of the heavens. And then the supernatural glory of the heavens with the cloud in um, the story of the transfiguration. Or we might think about the disfigured face and the transfigured face, the um, clothing that is shining like the sun and then the uh, clothing that is stripped, the way in which there's this mocking writing above declaring him to be the King of the Jews. And then the divine voice That declares his status. And in so many other respects, there's a sort of juxtaposition, but also a mutual interpretation of these two things. And at the heart then of the New Testament is this story of coronation and this principle of sovereignty that as we go back through the Old Testament is there too, I think, particularly leading up to this climactic Um, expression of sovereignty in the vision of something like Daniel chapter 7, the sovereignty that will belong to the Son of Man and the congregation of the Lord in him. That development is also one that requires reflection upon the lives of kings, upon the stories of David and Saul, and then zooming back a bit Um, Thinking about the story of the kingdoms, more generally, of Israel and Judah, as we follow their histories through the books of Kings and Chronicles, throughout the books then of the Old Testament, there are reflections upon sovereignty that I think tie into this fundamental reality of human sovereignty that's given in Adam. The way in which we're established, first of all, within the garden, but then later within the world, as the vice guerrants of the Lord, those who represent his rule within the creation, and then coming to its full expression in Christ as he seats. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who is the dust of the earth on the throne of heaven. And we rule, we are exalted, we are seated in heavenly places in him. And so I think. The principle of um, monarchy is, in some sense, a condensed symbol of that. C.S. Lewis has a very powerful quote where he reflects upon witnessing the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and the way in which her um, sense of the um, seriousness and the solemnity of what was happening to her, the sense that this is an event of deep moment that is not merely about one figure that's being exalted to a position of authority, but is about the human condition more generally. And all of us should be able to see the human race and ourselves as part of the human race within her condition. The fact that this weight of sovereignty is placed upon our shoulders, and we are those who are called to rule in God's creation, bearing a burden that is far greater than we could ever deserve to bear and there's a dignity within that and so having these symbols of sovereignty at the very heart of the people i think is important because there's something that discloses the true nature of humanity and there as you mentioned earlier peter the example of david as the archetypal israelite he's the one who's meditating on the law day and night, as Psalm 1 speaks about. He's the one who's wiser than all of his teachers because he meditates upon the law. And every Israelite is supposed to be a sort of King David within his life. Every Israelite should be incorporated into the kingly experience within his realm of sovereignty. And so I think monarchy captures something of this fundamental symbolism of human existence now that doesn't mean that people within a republic are held back from that they can still enjoy the sense of symbolism we are all kings and queens within our um, callings and ultimately we are sons and daughters of the king in christ but yet there is something i think of a condensed symbolism within a monarchic system that enables us to feel that maybe on a more visceral and immediate level and to embed it And it's that sort of symbolism within our polities.
0: Yeah, thanks. A a couple couple of responses. that uh, One is, um, I I can't remember the title of the book, uh, but there was a book I read in the last couple of years that was talking about the uh, formation of the American presidency. And it was remarkable uh, how often the early framers of the American Constitution thought about the president in monarchical terms they thought of they thought of him as having a kind of a, a kind of royal position i don't think that they certainly didn't envision the the dual party system that we currently have and i think that probably some of the things that they hoped for for the presidency were that they have that he would have that kind of uh, that partisan transcendence that you talked about that's monarchy i think the presidents that stand out to me as great presidents in my lifetime are presidents that were able to do that or moments in certain presidencies where presidents were able to do that, um, Reagan was a, a Republican partisan, but he had this quality of kind of representing representing America, uh, and certainly in the aftermath of uh, the nine eleven attacks, uh, George W. Bush had that that moment at least where he had that kind of that kind of role. He wasn't seen as representing the Republican Party; he was seen as the the uh, the head of a, of a people. And I think that that the fact that that monarchy plays a, a significantly symbolic role. It seems like that's part of what Deuteronomy 17 is getting at. Deuteronomy 17 doesn't give, as I said to the outside, Deuteronomy 17 doesn't give the king a whole lot to do. It doesn't tell him what his range of responsibilities are, but instead puts him in this kind of representative position of being, as you said, kind of an archetypal Israelite who who is doing what all Israelites are supposed to be doing and it's not a reduction but almost making setting up the king as a figurehead but with the recognition that figureheads are essential to the health of a of a people
1: and there i think it's very important to notice that this is not monarchy as such this is a very specific form of political office that distinguishes the king of Israel from the kings of the, the surrounding nations the power of the law at the heart of the people being the law of the true king and the law of god is very much foregrounded here as is the fact that the king is the brother of the israelites he's not uh, some blue blood that's over all of them a different sort of species almost he is someone who must maintain his kinship with them and he must also maintain his position under the law as a representative israelite who is an Israelite, but more so in some sense. He's not um, distant from the average Israelite by virtue of his office. Rather, he's to become more and more of a representative, uh, a sort of, there's something of the everyman within David. And I think we see this also within the Psalms, where it is David's experience as the sufferer who's persecuted by King Saul that is more archetypal within the Psalms, not the experience of David as the the one who's the great king with great authority. And even when we see that, it's in the Psalms that represent um, David as Adam, um, the one who has the authority placed upon his shoulders as man. Um, And I think within the superscriptions of the psalms more generally that talk about David's life. It's David as he's persecuted by Saul or Absalom, and there's a sense of David entering into the experience of the suffering of uh, into the experience of suffering for the people, but also in a way that the people can figure their lives and their understanding into that of David. And that continuity between king and people I think, pushes against many visions of sovereignty. And it also highlights that any Christian society um, cannot just have Christian faith as the underwriting of its principle of government um, and that government float free of any Christian principles. Rather, there's a Christian vision of sovereignty that pushes against all the ideals and the values of pagan sovereignty and monarchy. And so David is the archetypal king, and ultimately Christ as the true king, I think, represents a sort of sovereignty that marks that is marked out from all other societies and has, as it's been incarnated within various Christian societies over the years, been something that's pushed against pre-existing principles of sovereignty in ways that have been reforming, and I think, have led to a humbling of the pretensions that are fundamentally idolatrous of governments that want to
0: set themselves up um, over god yeah that's uh, that's reinforced the the uniqueness of the israelite monarchy is reinforced by the fact that this text on kingship is surrounded by passages that have to do with other forms of authority judges local judges priests and judges in the at the central sanctuary there're going to be prophets or kind of a wild card uh, in chapter 18, so it's not like the king is elevated as the sole source of authority or the sole ruler, but uh, he's surrounded by all these other rulers. I did want to highlight verse 14, which introduces this section on kingship. Uh, when you enter the land that Yahweh or God gives you, and you possess and live in it, and you say, "I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me," and then it goes on to describe what what they're how they're supposed to proceed. Uh, that's virtually the same thing that Israel says in the days of Samuel, we want a king like the nations. And in Samuel, it seems clear that there's a negative connotation to that, that uh, being having a king like the nations is wanting a king that acts like the king of the nations. And Samuel's warning is, well, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. Uh, the Lord is going to give you your desires. And uh, if you want a king like the nations, you're going to get a king who's constantly grabbing stuff from you. I'm not sure that it has the same connotation here. Some commentators suggest that there's that kind of uh, warning note that's already set here. Being like the nations all the way through Deuteronomy is a is a is a bad thing. Israel's not supposed to be like the nations. But um it seems somewhat more neutral here. And even if it's negative, it's uh, certainly followed by these, as Alistair was saying, it's followed by these standards and requirements that uh radically differentiate Israel's kingship from the kingship of the nations you're going to have a king like the nations, this is the way you do it. And when you get to the end of the passage, you say, well, that's not a king like the nations at all, which is, of course, just the point. Yes, I mean, that in
2: part raises the question, doesn't it, that um, when at least Saul um, arises, is he uh, the kind of king, in verse 15, whom the Lord your God will choose? Which, I mean, in part comes down to how we understand the um, reference to David, as as a man after my own heart, I, I'm I'm inclined to take that as um, a man like after my choice. So the Lord is saying that He is the King that He chose, but that Saul wasn't. Um, but I, I guess that gets us into different uh, different areas.
0: Fam- famously, the the King uh, of Israel is supposed to limit himself in three particular ways, in verses sixteen and seventeen. Um, He's not supposed to multiply horses for himself, and involved with that is not to return to Egypt to multiply horses, not to horse trade with Egypt, with the overtone of if you return to Egypt to uh, acquire horses, then you're returning to Egypt politically and covenantally too. You're going to become, you're going to have a king that's like Pharaoh, whose uh, power is based on having a large number of horses and chariots and, and armaments. He's not supposed to multiply and depend on, um, military and especially, uh, aggressive, offensive military, uh, technology. He's not supposed to multiply wives, uh, verse 17, which is, you know, kings would multiply wives in part, surely to display their prowess. They were supposed they kings were, ancient kings were supposed to be the source of fertility for the land, uh, and their own fertility and, uh, vitality would be a symbol of that fertility that they would bring to the land. Uh, and uh, so not to multiply horses because you're not the source of fertility, Yahweh is, but also not to uh, m- multiply wives rather. Also not to m- multiply wives because you're not supposed to be making all these alliances. Um, Solomon makes has uh, 300 concubines, 700 wives and 300 concubines, or is it the other way around? A thousand total. And all of these are um, or many of them are, uh, mili- are are political alliances. He marries the daughter of some king or prince or chieftain somewhere, so that they can. That's going to seal uh, his alliance with them, and he's gaining power by sealing all these alliances with marriage. He's kind of a, an early Habsburg uh, who's who's building his power by uh, marrying into all the royal families that surround him. Uh, not supposed to do that. Uh, supposed to uh, supposed to be a model Israelite not supposed to be a, a polygamist at all, and uh, not just supposed to rely on those kind of political machinations in order to secure your power. And then he's also not supposed to put multiply silver and gold, enrich himself. As as Alistair was emphasizing, he's from the brothers, Israelites, verse 15. Uh, he's chosen from among the brothers. They're not supposed to put a foreigner who is not among the brothers, verse 20. His heart is not supposed to be lifted up, up above his brothers, and that includes, he's not supposed to have a luxurious lifestyle that is elevated far above the rest of Israel. He's not supposed to accumulate large amounts of money uh, that will enable him to live that kind of life. Solomon is wealthy. Solomon's wealth becomes a a, a a trap for him. But the wealth itself is not a problem so long as he's using it as in order to uh, enhance Israel in order to glorify and, and, and bless the people and bless the land, and be a witness to the nations, which he does to some extent with his wealth. But just uh, the uh, accumulation of gold and silver that uh, allows the king to be elevated economically and uh, uh, financially above everyone else is not, uh, Israel is forbidden. In all those ways, the Israelite king is not to be like the kings of the nations. Kings of the nations multiplied horses and chariots. They multiplied wives. They multiplied gold and silver. That's the whole point of being king, that you could do those things. Uh, And Israel is, Israelite kings are supposed to do the opposite.
1: We've noted that this is part of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. At the end of this commandment, it seems that there's some sort of echo of that, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now we've thought about these commandments chiefly in terms of the father-child relationship, oh, father-and-mother-child relationship, and the way in which we honor figures in authority as um children are supposed to honor honor their parents. And yet it's interesting to reflect upon this as representing the king, not primarily as a father of the people, but as a son of the Lord and an archetypal son of the Lord who must relate to his brothers accordingly. And so he's not chiefly set up as a brother. He's the firstborn son of the Lord within the company of the children of the Lord. We might think about the way that he is, Relating to his father as the one who's teaching, uh, the one who's receiving his teaching of the law and internalizing it, as parents are supposed to teach their children in places like chapter six. And later on, of course, in the Davidic covenant, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. That principle of sonship, which is a in some sense, a democratizing principle, because it's not one that's exclusive to the king. It's one that will be enjoyed. It's one shared in by all the people. Israel is my firstborn son, but also will be democratizing, certainly within the new covenant, when we are all sons and daughters um, of God. It seems that this may be wrong foots what we might expect. We might expect this principle of king as father And yet it's the king is the archetypal son and brother. And his rule is not without analogy with the father-son relationship in its relationship to the people, but there is also something where he's the firstborn son who's mediating between parents and the generation of the children. He's the one who is leading and establishing the patterns that the younger born will follow. And so the authority of the king, in many ways, is an authority of example. And we see this, I think, particularly in David, but more generally within the story of the kings. They set the pattern, whether that's Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who causes Israel to sin by his idolatry. His pattern of behavior is written upon the behavior of the entire nation. And David, likewise, he's someone who, by his behavior, sets the tone. He's the one who instills a pattern of love for the law in the Psalms, but also patterns of unfaithfulness in his sins with Bathsheba and in other events. And so it seems to me that that exemplary authority, maybe the one form of authority that is chiefly associated with the character of a firstborn, Um, is foregrounded here, rather than a sort of parental um, ruling authority that just tells people what to do.
0: Yeah, that's uh, reinforced right at the end of of the chapter with uh, verse 20. The last clause is, in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel, which is obviously an echo of the end of the fifth word, uh, which is addressed to children who are honoring their father and mother. And the promise given to the a king is the promise given to faithful children. Uh, so, and We've said, but I've said it uh, many times uh, in our studies in Deuteronomy that Ralph Smith's point that the whole book of Deuteronomy is under this heading that Yahweh is Yahweh is the father, Israel is the son, and uh, the fifth commandment promise, the fifth commandment's requirement and promise are both operative throughout Deuteronomy, and and here particularly with the king. That obviously fits other place. Uh, other your comments about uh, the king as firstborn obviously obviously fits other places in the Old Testament that actually describe the king in those terms. Uh, he's he's uh, he's the firstborn of the children of Yahweh. There's also an interesting continuation of this idea of writing that we've
2: come across in Deuteronomy already, haven't we? While um, the nations, I guess, are used to images. Um, God says very clearly, he revealed himself to people by word. And as a result, rather than building images, Israel are to write words. They're going to inscribe on a stone altar. They're going to write the law on not just on their hearts, but on the doorposts of their houses, etc. And here the king, too, is to um, write. And that seems then significant against the backdrop of verses 16 and 17. He's not too, um Multiply, I guess, is is literally here. He's not going to multiply for himself um, uh, horses. He's not going to multiply for himself um, wives. Rather, he, he's going to multiply um, the word. He's going to write himself um, a, a copy here, like um, a, a copy of the Torah. And um, and I guess the opposite of that is what happens when someone acts um, presumptuously, which sort of is going to turn up in the next chapter. And I think we've had that already in this. Chapter as well, haven't we? Uh, uh, verse thirteen. So um, there, the the word is is diminished, um, and it, it becomes um, as if it's less important to Israel. Ra- rather, the king um, is to multiply and and honor the word.
0: Yeah, An- another aspect of uh, the kind of sonship theme that we have here is uh, verse eighteen. Uh, the king is copying himself a book uh, from the book of the law. He's going to call it out and he copies it in the presence of the Levitical priests. If anybody's kind of in a supervisory role here, it's not the king. The king is, it doesn't say that the the priests are writing it for him, but the the priests are monitoring and ensuring the accuracy of what the king is copying out and what he's writing in the book. So the king, again, is still like all the other Israelites. He's being taught and overseen and his understanding of the law is being enhanced by the experts in the law, which are the Levitical priests. And again, we see, as we saw in the last episode, the involvement of Levitical priests in the political system. We saw that with judicial process earlier in chapter 17. Cases can be brought to the central sanctuary where priests and judges make decisions. And here in the court of a king, uh, the king has priests surrounding him to ensure the accuracy of his understanding of the law uh, and to teach and advise him.
1: That also makes clear something that we'll see going into chapter 18 as well. The different offices of the priest, the king, and the prophet that don't present them in a straightforward hierarchy, but in mutually conditioning and challenging roles. So the king is the one, for instance, who will build the house of the Lord. He's the one who will establish the temple worship. We see this, of course, most powerfully in... First Kings chapter 8 and Solomon's prayer and the dedication, the dedication of the temple, we can also see the way that the prophet, for instance, Nathan's role in the building of the temple and his counsel to David and to his son, um, the way that that provides direction. And so you have, on the one hand, the priest who is the household guardian of the house of the Lord, who is the father of the king, and the king who is responsible for maintaining that order, for guarding and to establish the temple order, and then the prophet who is a participant in the heavenly council who can bring the deliberations of the heavenly council to the king and also speak on behalf of the king to the heavenly council. Each one of these offices is in some sense responsible to and accountable to other, the other offices in specific regards, while also being able to challenge and and hold the other offices responsible or to be served by those other offices, the prophet, for instance, who serves in the court of the king or the way in which the priest is overseeing the writing of the king in this chapter. And so those mutually connected and challenging and criticizing offices, establish a system where, uh, for instance, in the stories of the kings, the role of the prophets is key. They're the ones who are often speaking against the unfaithfulness of the kings. And we also have, for instance, the role of priests in teaching faithful kings who will be um, reformers. And more generally, we have an ecosystem of authority within which there's not a straightforward top-down hierarchy, but mutually conditioning offices whereby the authority of God's word in different modes can be maintained. And there's less, there's not some autocrat at the heart of the system who just gets his way. Um, There's always built into the system criticism, testing, and ultimately the authority of the word of the Lord.
0: I frequently cite uh, the little poem that's at the beginning of 2 Samuel 23 as a summary of what the Bible teaches about the character of kingship and uh, of authority in general. I think this uh, the portrait applies to fathers and families, uh, pastors and churches, to employers uh, or heads of businesses, anyone who's in authority, rules righteously and justly in the fear of the Lord. Uh, verse 4 says... It, uh, such, a, such a one who rules justly is like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when tender grass springs up out of the earth through sunshine after rain. So that the king is uh, a righteous king, a righteous ruler is like light. Light brings health and enables us to see. Obviously, light exposes dark places. Light is necessary to the flourishing of all living things the picture is not just of the sunrise and the light, but also the sunrise on uh, tender grass that springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. So there's hints of a, of a rainbow. There's hints of glory, the sunshine that, uh, that makes your front yard sparkle. Like it's uh, like, like it's been sprinkled with diamonds. That's what the King does in, uh, in a just King does a just King not only provides health and light. Uh, for the people, but also glorifies them, so that they uh, they're they're like uh, not just like grass, but they're like the glorified grass that Jesus talks about, the uh, the lily that's uh, robed in glory greater than that of Solomon. That's that's the picture. That's these are the last words of David in Second uh, Samuel twenty three. It's like a final pronouncement about kingship from David, and it describes to us what the king is supposed to do in Israel. When a king does what. Deuteronomy 17 requires, when he has the law before him, when he meditates on it day and night, uh, when he remembers and humbles himself as a brother, when he doesn't multiply horses and chariots or or gold and silver or wives, when he doesn't try the various forms of uh, manipulating political power or manipulating military power to enhance his position, uh, then he's like light. He's like a sun that uh, brings life and health and glory to his land. Uh, and obviously uh, that, that portrait of kingship, that portrait of rule applies as much in the present day as it did in the past. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that uh, political rulers in our current day are violating what uh, the, what Deuteronomy requires of rulers. Uh, rulers who keep multiplying horses and chariots and military, uh, military might as the foundation of security. Political rulers who enrich themselves uh, by using power uh, to their advantage uh, political rulers who uh, form alliances and manipulate alliances in the way that uh, ancient kings did with their harems so uh, the model of kingship that uh, the that Deuteronomy presents still works it's still the model that we should aspire to uh, whether we're uh, again fathers in homes or whether we're pastors in churches or whether we're uh, have a a small number of employees in a small business or whether we're, mayors of a town or whatever whatever position of authority we happen to be in, uh, that's the kind of rule that we should aspire to uh, as a life giver and a glorifier of those who are under us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.